Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Not for the first time, and almost certainly not the last, the Trump presidency and Brexit are the themes of this week's podcast. But with developments coming every day in these two stories, our correspondents Suzanne Lynch in Washington and Patrick Smith in Brussels have plenty of new material to work on. And it's to Washington first, where next Monday, Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump's nominee to fill the vacancy on the US Supreme Court, and Christine Blasey Ford, the woman who has accused Kavanaugh of assaulting her when they were both teenagers in the early 1980s, will testify before the US Senate. For more on this and other political developments in Washington, I'm joined now from there by Suzanne Lynch. Um, Suzanne, in spite of the best efforts of the Democratic Party to thwart his appointment, Brett Kavanaugh was enjoying a relatively smooth passage to the Supreme Court until Sunday. Then what happened? Yeah, exactly. Um, It was really seen as a done deal. The vote was scheduled to take place in the Senate Judiciary Committee this Thursday about his nomination, and all signs were that he would be endorsed. Uh, Republicans have a slim majority in the Senate, and the indications were that they would would endorse him to become the next, um, the ninth member of the Supreme Court. On Sunday, a woman uh, who who has been named now and has been identified as a a professor in California, Christine Blasey Ford, uh, publicly said in an interview with the Washington Post uh, that she had been assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh back in the early 1980s when they were both high school students. Now, rumours and uh, insinuations had surfaced earlier in the week. Last Thursday, Senator Dianne Feinstein, one of the main Democrats on the committee, said she had referred an allegation to federal investigators concerning Brett Kavanaugh. She did not uh, specify what they were, but within a few days, it had emerged that this allegation was something to do with an alleged sexual assault. And then, as I say, on Sunday, uh, the woman behind this story um, took took control of it, if you like, and decided to give an interview with the Washington Post. Um, And this set off um, huge alarm bells on both the Democratic and Republican side. And we saw a flurry of activity here in Washington overnight, Sunday night, on Monday, meetings in Capitol Hill, meeting in the White House. And uh, the final result now has been that the uh, committee chairman has decided um, to hold public hearings with both Mr. Kavanaugh, who protests his innocence, and the accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, to public testimony, essentially, about this. What precisely does she allege took place, and, and what has he had to say about it? So um, the accuser says that when they were both high school students, um, that Brett Kavanaugh locked her in a bedroom, um, pinned her to a bed, groped her, covered her mouth to stop her from screaming. Um, And another man was present, her friend was present in the room. He jumped on top of both of them and they kind of tumbled to the ground and she escaped. Um, Her lawyer has said, uh, her lawyer made a public statement yesterday and said that uh, her, her client essentially believes that only that he was so inebriated, um, she believes that she she would have been raped and that essentially that he would have inadvertently killed her. Uh, she uh, says, she said in her interview the Washington Post that uh, this issue came again to light. She, she's kind of um, thought about it since that moment in the early 80s. Uh, the accuser has said that this incident in her past came up during couples therapy with her husband in 2012 and that the psychologist has notes uh, relating to that uh, from 2012. So this is likely to come up into the, in the hearing. I mean, another interesting aspect of this is here in, in Washington, it's really transfixed people because both Brett Kavanaugh and the accuser 
both attended quite elite uh, private schools here in DC. Um, and for example, I met somebody last night who said her daughters went to school with Christine Blasey Ford here in, in DC. So it's, it's really kind of divided the local community um, about this incident uh, that is alleged to have happened uh, back in the early 80s. Now, as you say there, Brett Kavanaugh has strenuously denied these allegations. He issued a statement on Monday that was issued via the White House saying them, he categorically uh, denied this, saying it was a completely false allegation. He said, I have never done anything like what the accuser describes to her or to anyone. And he wanted, he said, to appear before the Senate and talk to the Senate Judiciary Committee in any way appropriate to, to defend his integrity, essentially. And we're now set for this extraordinary spectacle for uh, next Monday where both will testify. Will this be in public in front of live TV cameras? Yes, it seems at this stage that it will be and, and next Monday. Earlier this week, the chairman of the committee had initially said that he expected to speak maybe with the accuser uh, by telephone and have follow-up calls and maybe private talks with with both people. But now there were growing calls that, that this is done publicly. And so that has been set up for, for Monday. And it really is an extraordinary uh, turn of events. What's going to be very interesting to watch is how the committee handles this. There are a lot of memories of what happened um, over 30 years ago with Anita Hill. Very, very similar story that riveted the nation. This was just before uh, the nomination, uh, the vote on Clarence Thomas, a Supreme Court nominee, and a woman came forth and uh, came forward and accused him of sexual assault. Different case, different accusations, obviously, but a lot of parallels. And and what happened with that case was that. This really went down in history as an example of, I suppose, an early example of the Me Too movement. This woman, this African-American woman, Anisha Hill, who accused Clarence Thomas, faced an all-male judiciary committee um, and who who really, a lot of people felt, treated her abominably. Um, Clarence Thomas was endorsed. um, And I think a lot of memories of that are very much in the ether. So I think Republicans in particular are going to be very much treading carefully on how they handle their public inquisition of this woman and of Brett Kavanaugh in front of the TV cameras next Monday. And that was very notable yesterday, Suzanne, Monday, how, how carefully the Republicans were treading and they were insisting that the accuser here, um, Christine Blasey Ford, be given her opportunity to speak. But at the same time, I think it's clear that they they smell political skullduggery here. And without prejudging the facts, I mean, are, are there some legitimate concerns about the manner in which this has come out so late in the day? Yeah, I mean, you're right. What's what's fascinating about this is that Republicans have taken a softly, softly approach. Um, yesterday morning, Monday morning, this was the real sign that the White House was worried. Kellyanne Conway uh, publicly said that this woman should be heard. She said she, she should, you know, she should be uh, heard. She should not be insulted, she said. Uh, she should not be ignored. And then later on, even Donald Trump uncharacteristically seemed to uh, give a kind of measured response to this. Yes, he accused Democrats of playing politics, but he also said that he believed that everybody should be heard out and we need to go through a process. So, yes, carefully treading again. But you're right, there's also been accusations by Republicans that Democrats um, have intervened, as Mitch McConnell said yesterday, at the 11th hour. The the reality is that Dianne Feinstein, the senator, had the information. This woman contacted her back in July. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has questioned why she waited until now to drop this, uh, drop this news. He's accusing of Democrats of leaking uh, this news to the press. They have denied that. Um, but yes, they, they are accusing them of playing politics um, and of kind of a last minute desperate attempt to try and derail this process because, um, as you said there at the beginning of this podcast, you know, the, the hearings had gone so well, essentially, for Kavanaugh that this is a desperate attempt 
uh, by Democrats to try and derail his nomination. And that's the accusation against him from Republicans. How much trouble do you think Kavanaugh is in? It's, it's very hard to see a good outcome for him on, on Monday, isn't it? I think he's in could be in very, very big trouble here. I mean, I think you're you're right. It's raising very, very sensitive, very interesting ethical issues about how far can you be held accountable for something in your past? Did it happen? Will there be any proof here? Um, and it all depends on how this this plays out on Monday. Um, but I think it's a huge cloud, even if he is nominated. It's a huge going to be a huge cloud over his his uh, seat on the Supreme Court. <coughs> Sorry, I just. How important is it, Suzanne, for Donald Trump to get this nomination through? I mean, how much of a setback would it be for him if Kavanaugh was forced to withdraw? This is hugely significant for the White House, for Donald Trump. And I think that was reflected in Donald Trump's statement on Monday, where, as I say, he was quite measured, you know, relatively, um, you know, relatively toned down in his comments. He didn't fight back, as usually is as an instinct, because I think they realise it's a serious issue now. His nomination, his, the look, in a sense, that he had... Um, of having the opportunity to appoint two Supreme Court justices. It's really a defining, would be the defining legacy of his presidency. And it's something that plays really well with his supporters. Um, his administration has quietly been pushing through uh, judges, not as, just at the Supreme Court level, but at all levels in the judiciary system here. Um, so the idea that Brett Kavanaugh might not be endorsed would be a huge blow to Republicans. And the timing here is what's so interesting. We are 50 days out from the midterm elections. The Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has has arranged this whole um, process, nomination process, in order to push through the nomination of Kavanaugh as quickly as possible before the the opening of the court term and, more importantly, before the midterm elections. Because if this is derailed, we then may have a situation where it's very unlikely that Republicans will be able to get a nominee through before the midterm elections. Then you have a situation where... It's still very up in the air, but people are now saying it's possible that Democrats could take back control of the Senate uh, in November. If that was to happen, it would be would have extraordinary you know, implications here for the Supreme Court, because even if Donald Trump would uh, nominate you know, a replacement for Brett Kavanaugh, the Democrats could effectively could, could block that if if they're in control of the Senate. So I think that's really worrying uh, Republicans at the moment. And they're going to try everything they can to make sure that this goes as well as possible for their nominee, who they are still backing, by the way. I mean, there was President Trump was asked yesterday on Monday in the Oval Office, should he uh, should he withdraw? And it was the one moment where he seemed to snap. He said, that's a ridiculous question. So there is no suggestion at this point but we're still a, just under a week until these public hearings that uh, Brett Kavanaugh um, may withdraw. One other issue I think to watch is that this friend of Brett Kavanaugh has been mentioned quite a bit. His name is Mark Judge. The friend he who was, was allegedly in the room when when exactly. this incident allegedly exactly. happened. Exactly, allegedly happened. Now he is an interesting figure because he has is essentially a journalist. He's written extensively about his high school days. And unfortunately for Brett Kavanaugh, the name of the his memoir he wrote was called Wasted. Um, and he describes in detail about swimming in a sea of alcohol and generally the debauchery that happened during his high school years in this elite Georgetown prep school here in Washington. He doesn't mention Brett Kavanaugh by name at any point, but in one of his sets of writings, um, there is a, a, a reference to somebody called Brett O'Kavanaugh or some kind of a, of a play on his name. Um, so that is now a worry. Will he be called to testify? He's already backed uh, Brett Kavanaugh, but he is emerging as a possible you know, witness in this in this whole situation because, as you say, he's the only the other person who's been named by the accuser of, of, of witnessing this incident.
And, and and that's really interesting, Suzanne. And also, in terms of the political stakes you were discussing there a moment ago, it's worth remembering that this, as it stands, the Republicans have a very, very slim majority in the Senate. So it just w- would take, I presume, a couple of Republicans to get windy, if you like, about this appointment to, yes. to torpedo it, essentially. Yes, and there's, there's two aspects here. Already, there were, there, there were three Democrats uh, in the Senate who represent states that are very pro-Republican. And they were coming under pressure from their own base to endorse Donald Trump's nominee. You know, a lot of their conservative voters wanted them to endorse the Republican nominee. That is now, now they have cover not to endorse him. And then secondly, as you say, um, with Republicans with such a slim majority, there are two in particular uh, senators that now there are, you know, a lot of focus is turning towards. And that is uh, Senator Susan Collins from, from Maine um, and Senator uh, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, two women senators uh, two moderates uh, in terms of, of Republican politics here. And they are going to come under huge pressure now from debate from women voters about this nomination. The key question will be, will they will they endorse Brett Kavanaugh? Susan Collins was one of the first people on Monday who came out and said she wanted to hear testimony from both people. Um, so I think they are the two people to watch after next Monday when these hearings are held. And this controversy is not what the Republicans need um, as the midterm elections approach, is it? No, and I mean, I think um, it's coming at the end of a, of a kind of a difficult week. Uh, various polls have uh, been published in the last week or so that have shown that Donald Trump's support is falling. And there's been a renewed energy, I think, around the Democratic campaign just in the last week or so. Um, there are signs that they're going to do very well in the House of Representative seats. And perhaps now, as I mentioned, in the Senate, some seats that were seen as Republican you know, as, as a solid Republican may uh, may turn blue in November. So I think Republicans were already edgy, already on edge about this. Um, and this would be a huge blow to them if, you know, as I say, one of their key objectives here. And, and this is one of the reasons why traditional Republicans in the Senate who are dubious about Donald Trump have continued to work with him. They were prepared essentially to turn a blind eye to his fadings. Um, to or in order to get what they ultimately wanted, which is more conservative voices on, on the court system. So if this was to collapse at this 11th hour, it would be a huge blow for, for traditional Republicans here in Washington. And, and speaking of elections, Suzanne, one man who might yet feature in the next presidential election, unlikely as it might have seemed, is Joe Biden, who of course was vice president to, to Barack Obama. You were at an interesting event in Washington last night at which he spoke, isn't that right? Tell us about that. Yes, uh, Joe Biden um, appeared that the ambassador, Dan Hall, the Irish ambassador to the United States, the residence here in Washington, D.C. He um, uh, was invited there to launch the Cambridge History of Ireland, a four-volume book um, on Irish history that's, that's selling very well, actually. This is the American launch. And uh, Joe Biden has, has kept uh, quite a low profile until the last couple of months. Um, this His appearance on Monday uh, comes hot on the heels of appearance here on Saturday night, um, in which he addressed uh, the Trump administration. He talks about how himself and Barack Obama feel they should have intervened more publicly, um, uh, criticizing Donald Trump and that Charlottesville was the thing that made him kind of intervene. So there are real um, rumors and expectations here that Joe Biden could be considering a a run. And just on a side issue, as it happens, Joe Biden has kind of been brought into this whole issue of the Brad Kavanaugh nomination, because back when Anita Hill testified over 30 years ago, he was a chairman of the committee. Joe Biden was a senator then, and he was criticized for the way he handled this. So last night when he appeared at the Irish Embassy, actually he was asked about um, this issue uh, of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, and he very much said 
that he, he essentially regretted how he handled the hearing back then as chairman and how he allowed the, the, the line of questioning. So, so, so that's something that could um, come back to haunt Joe Biden as it happens. But no, he has um, been seen as someone who's going to run. He hasn't publicly said that. But I think the message last night, he gave a lengthy speech about, about Ireland, about his Irish roots. And I suppose it's a testimony to the power of the Irish-American links that they had such a high-profile figure speaking on the record in front of the cameras here in Washington. Um, but his coded message was, was an anti-Trump message. He spoke at length about uh, the experience of the immigrant, um, about how no matter who they are, everyone is entitled to be treated with dignity. He stressed the positive attributes of immigration, um, and that's why we are the country we are. So he. But what was interesting, afterwards he spoke to journalists and he was asked, would he run? He, he, he didn't answer that directly, but he said he wanted to... He was always running to change attitudes. And he said there was no need need to be depressed in America. America should be proud of who it is. So there was very much a sense that he is, if he is going to run, and indeed he will probably play a central role in the campaign in the next couple of months ahead of the midterms, that he is running on a message of hope, you know, an anti-make America great again. He's kind of suggesting, to coin a phrase, it is already great. And what, why is there all this despair that Trump is is, is trying to tap into or, or manufacture, he would say. So he had a very, very strong message on that. Um, but look, there are concerns, obviously, about his age. He's turning 76 in November, but his supporters would say, you know, in this country, doesn't seem to be as much of an issue. President Trump is already, he's 72 years of age. And we also report just today that uh, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, that he is considering a campaign run for president in 2020. And he is already at 76 years of age. So I think here, you know, it's not much of an issue, really. Or it is an issue, but not to the same extent it might be in Europe when it comes to somebody running for the presidency. You would wonder if either of them offers the fresh start that many people think the Democratic Party needs. But I think that's a discussion for another day. Um, the clock is against us now. Thanks, Suzanne, for that. That was Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent. It's to Brexit now, and EU leaders meet in the picturesque surroundings of Salzburg in Austria this week for an informal summit at which it is hoped that some real progress can be made on negotiations to stop the UK from crashing out of the EU without a deal next March. The dreaded no-deal Brexit. Patrick Smith, our Europe editor, joins me now from Brussels. Paddy, what are we expecting to emerge from this summit in Salzburg on Wednesday and Thursday? Will we be any closer to a Brexit deal by the end of it? Not really. Uh, we're not expecting any breakthroughs or or uh, any any dramas. Um, basically, what what will happen is that as as at most summits, Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator, will report on progress. And as there hasn't really been any significant progress since the last time, it's not expected there'd be much uh, discussion um, on on alternatives. The, the only thing that, that really is quite interesting is. Um, they're beginning to talk about the structure um, of a framework for a post-Brexit relationship. And part of uh, the work in the next couple of months will be to sign up to a political declaration between Britain and the EU in which they spell out the shape of that. Now, the British have uh, recently published uh, the infamous Checkers document, uh, and that sort of sets out their view, their perspective on what uh, that future framework will be. And the leaders will probably this weekend begin to talk about how uh, exactly they see that future relationship and how detailed and how uh, binding they want to see this uh, political declaration. And one of the interesting things there is, is that the British uh, had a rather painful experience with the previous uh, political declaration in, in December when they signed up to the backstop. Um, they um, 
immediately regretted it. They did it because, of course, they, they weren't going to get a deal, they weren't going to move on to the next phase of the negotiations unless they signed up to the backstop then and there. But they've regretted the backstop ever since. And they've regretted the extent to which the commitment was binding. And so there will be an attempt by leaders, I think, to try and formulate um, a framework for this next political declaration uh, that is as binding as possible. It can't be legally binding like, like the withdrawal agreement itself, but it can have make the British, force the British to make serious political commitments that they can't go back on. Now, the, the Irish border remains a, a major obstacle to a deal. And, and Barnier has been keen to, in his own words, de-dramatise the border issue. Um, how has he gone about that and what kind of you know, solutions is he is he floating? Well, uh, this is this is to do with the backstop uh, uh, agreement, which is the, the thorniest of, of all the... Uh, uh, elements uh, in the in the withdrawal agreement, which is the divorce agreement, which should be signed up to in in October uh, or, or or November. Um, the backstop is an insurance policy. Basically, if we don't get a comprehensive deal between the EU and uh, the UK about their future relationship down the line, uh, then we will have something to fall back on, which guarantees that there is no border in in Ireland, no visible friction, you know, no border with friction. Um, the big problem has been that the EU has said that the only way it sees that as working is if the Northern Ireland, if Northern Ireland is treated as, as a case apart, that Northern Ireland remains in uh, the customs union and the single market in effect, and, and the rest of the UK goes its own, uh, its own way. The British say that they don't like that solution because it means they believe a an inevitable border down the Irish Sea. Um, and that's where we've got the all this talk of de-dramatizing it. Obviously, a border down the Irish Sea is is toxic uh, for unionists. Um, they 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 say it's the beginning of the end of the union and and, and all other um, you know all that could possibly be wrong is implied by by this uh, idea of border down the Irish Sea. And again, Dominic Raab, in an interview that he gave to our, our London correspondent, Dennis Staunton, was saying, we will not tolerate a border down the Irish Sea. This is a, this is a big problem. Um, and unless this particular problem is resolved, there won't be either a backstop agreed or uh, ultimately a, a withdrawal agreement. And if the withdrawal agreement is not agreed, then Britain will not go into transition at the end of March and we'll, we'll have a free fall um, no deal uh, situation, which would be disastrous for everybody. And, and one of the things I think Grab was keen to emphasise was that th- this is not a question of the DUP, the Northern Ireland Unionist Party, which um, is, is propping up the British government. It's not a question of them holding a gun to the the, the, the heads of the government. This is a the, he says the entire British Parliament really, you know, is behind him and this behind the government on this issue. Yes, they're, they're behind him at the moment because they also interpret this, these controls uh, as being a border down the Irish Sea. Um, I, I think that it's inev- inevitable that the British government will have to start saying uh, what Barnier is saying. Actually, they don't really constitute a border. They don't threaten the constitutional position of, of Northern Ireland. Listen, this is the only way we're going to succeed in doing it because there actually isn't, a, there are no other proposals on the table that are seriously being considered. The British proposal is a vague suggestion that, oh, well, it'll be all right because we'll have a deal with 
the whole of the UK with, with the European Union. And therefore, you won't actually need uh, um, a, barrier, a border on, on, on the north. But that is so far removed from, from reality or from what is uh, on the table currently that uh, it, it, it simply doesn't work. And uh, so there has to be a facing up to this, this issue. And a lot of it hangs on this idea, on this interpretation of what a border is. And Paddy, why is the British government so wedded to their position on, on, on the question of no border down the Irish Sea? Well, there are two, two elements, really. One is that the Conservative Party is, a is uh, the Conservative and Unionist Party. It has always had a very, very strong position on maintaining the Union. And part of that is they're looking over their shoulder at Scotland and wondering, uh, is Nicola Sturgeon going to come at them afterwards and say, you've given Northern Ireland uh, a degree of independence that you haven't considered for us we want some of that, please. And that is very difficult for the Tories uh, because they, 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 they see Scotland as, as a very uh, dangerous thorn in their side and, and maybe coming down the road next. And um, Simon Coveney, the Irish Minister for Foreign Affairs, he's meeting Barnier again in, in Brussels uh, today. Is, is the Irish government satisfied that the, the EU still has its back on this issue? I, absolutely. And I, I, I spoke to senior Irish diplomats here over the last couple of days, and they are absolutely adamant that there's complete unity of the 27. Uh, uh, and you can see again in the document, for example, produced by uh, President Tusk, who's president of the European Council, he's absolutely specific in his letter to the leaders. What we will do, he says, on Thursday, is agree uh, once again that the backstop is absolutely necessary. And, and uh, senior sources close to Tusk says, and if there is no backstop, there'll be no withdrawal agreement. And after Thursday then, Paddy, we move on to a, another summit in October. And I, I think it's confirmed now is it, that there will be a, yet a further emergency summit in November. And is that right? And is, is that the sort of final deadline for a deal on, on, well, on, the, on the withdrawal agreement, I should say? There's been a lot of talk over the last few weeks that they weren't going to get things done by October and that November would be necessary. And so Donald Tusk has finally succumbed to this, um, to the inevitable, by writing to, to the leaders in, in that letter I was talking about, saying, and the other thing we have to discuss is the likelihood of a summit in November. So it's all but agreed. It, it, it almost certainly will now happen. Um, it it, it, it de-dramatizes certainly the October summit, where nobody expects now uh, a conclusion. And... and uh, the emphasis is now on, on the December. That's what I was going to ask you, really, because now the, the, the October summit, I won't say it seems pointless, but um, what, I mean, these, this is inevitably going to be a, a sort of a, a locked doors, people there all night, final deadline sort of situation, isn't it? So the October, he's, he's, he, has he given them carte blanche now, really, to um, breeze through the October summit without the pressure of a deal, which had been there previously? Well, I, I would just remind you that the EU has other business on its plate uh, other than Brexit. And the October summit has quite a, a substantial agenda to do with uh, very controversial migration issues uh, and, uh, and the like. Uh, so they won't have trouble occupying their time in, in, in October. Um, but in, in December, they will have to have a... Um, an agreement uh, ready to go. I think it's it's unlikely to be one of those through the night things because one of the things about Article 50, um, 
which is the, the, the clause on which the British are, uh, are negotiating their departure, is that there's actually no sit-down face-to-face between May and the EU leaders, the EU27. Um, she talks to Barnier and then Barnier goes to the 27 and, and says, well, this is what we've done so far. So these summits are largely pre-cooked and if Barnier hasn't got a deal in his pocket, uh, then in December there won't be any any results and there won't, there won't be any need to sit through the night. Um, so it's, it's unlikely to be uh, that sort of a drama. We will see a lot of long hard talking uh, between now and December though. Okay, now in the meantime Paddy, of course it's party conference season in Britain and um, what, what kind of signs will will people in Brussels be watching for from the Tory party conference in particular um, in terms of how much control Theresa May has over her own party and has over the negotiations herself? I think what uh, was very interesting was to see her the other day uh, in her interview on Panorama saying to her party, look, it's my deal or no deal. There isn't an alternative. There isn't another way. And it seemed like she was facing down the Brexiteers really for the first time and saying, uh, you know, get into line. Now, I think that's preparatory for a conference that the Tory leadership expects to be relatively straightforward. Uh, that's that's It's very difficult to predict, but they, they are expecting that the, the you know, Things will fall into place at the at the Tory party conference. Uh, they don't expect uh, a major rebellion by um, the the likes of of Boris Johnson. But but we'll see. We'll see. He's he's sort of uncontrollable, loose cannon, and um, and there could be there could be sparks. But by all accounts, the Brexiteers, the hard Brexiteers, are not in a majority. And they may like make a lot of noise and end up with with um, egg on their face. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.